The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, we'll go ahead and turn to the end of uh, Revelation, Revelation 22. We're going to read the entire epilogue, which begins at verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservant the things which must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So as we started the uh, epilogue last uh, Wednesday night, we noted that what we have is we have a prologue, which is 1, 1 to 8, and then the epilogue, which is 2, 22, 6 through 21. And what you have is you have the repetition of a number of, of the same themes. And so in a sense, what John's doing is he's, um, he's wrapping around and ending the book in a very similar way to the way he started it. And so the the epilogue actually is filled with a number of exhortations. 
And the first, of course, uh, uh, is heed the faithful and true words, verses 6 and 7. And again, just a, a reminder, uh, the fact is, is that, that this uh, book of prophecy, right, that's what it is. Remember, uh, Revelation is three things. It's, uh, it's, it's an epistle. <laughs> you can't get away from the fact that it's an epistle. In fact, you have seven epistles in chapters 2 and 3. It begins like an epistle and it ends like an epistle. And then it is a prophecy, which, of course, John refers to the book as a prophecy uh, multiple times. And then it's also apocalyptic literature. The language itself comes from Daniel and Ezekiel and so forth. But the, the, the reality is, is that in, those, um, in, in terms of prophecy and apocalyptic literature, um, John says these words need to be obeyed. In other words, it's not just given to us to fulfill our curiosity. It's not given to us so that we can create really cool charts. It's given to us for us to obey, for us to heed these faithful and true words. Then the next scene is uh, this: the angel who obviously gives this uh, to John is this majestic, glorious being, and John uh, goes and falls at his feet. Well, this is now the second time that John has done that, and the angel is very clear uh, when he simply says, do not do that, all right? And so uh, he tells John, I'm a fellow servant. I'm a fellow servant of the brethren, of the prophets, um, and so you need to worship God. And so then from there, um, the angel tells John not to seal up the words of this prophecy, and what's interesting about that is that at the end of Daniel, Daniel's actually told to seal up the words of the prophecy. Okay? And so you have really sort of a contrast. Revelation, John's told, don't seal these words. Daniel was told to seal these words. The idea is, is that the, the words that Daniel gave are now understood, right? They're now, they're now revealed. And, um, and so... Now, the, John, the words that John has given actually indicate that the time is near. In, no, in other words, the beginning of the end has begun. And so Daniel, looking towards the end, John now says, we don't seal up these words because the end is near. And in a sense, the beginning of the end has started. Then verse 11, there's an exhortation to holiness and um, we, we spent quite a bit of time on it last week, and so we're not going to spend uh, a bunch of time tonight. But the idea is that, and this, this goes back to Daniel, as we pointed out last week, the, the statement, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy be still filthy still. Um, the idea is that um, as, as the end approaches, right, there, there are going to be those that have insight and understanding to the things that are happening, right? This goes back to the Daniel passage. But the ones who, in a sense, refuse to see, they're going to be even more deeply confirmed in their own wickedness and their own filthiness, right? And, and what ends up happening 
is that those who are committed to a life that is contrary to a life of following God and being obedient to God and living by the light of his word, those, those people that are, that are in absolute rebellion to that, the closer we get to the end, the blinder they are. And so, in a sense, the, the exhortation, don't take it so much as a command as, as really, there's, there's, in a sense, a summons to repent, right? It's not as if this passage is against people repenting, okay? But the passage is actually much more in sense of a, of a warning. And the more the evildoer continues in his evil, and the more the filthy continue in their filth, the less they discern and the more they're confirmed in their own wickedness. That's a scary thing. It's a scary thing. Listening to Daniel talk about the, the gal cutting his hair, um, you have to remember that um, as God's hand of common grace actually um, is, is, is increasingly lifted from a people, the very things that, that, made, for, um, that made for decency, that made for... Uh, even the idea of civil religion, um, the common denominators in a worldview, those things are rapidly disappearing. And the, 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 the quicker they disappear, you have then, in a sense, a, a deepening divide between those who have an insight of what's going on and those that don't. So then that brings us to where we left off last week, which is verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so it, actually in this epilogue, it's, it's very compacted. Jesus says three times, I'm coming quickly. Right? Uh, in other words, he, it, th- there's this... Um, there's this wonderful uh, emphasis on the fact that, um, that we are in the end. And Jesus is, in fact, going to return. And that return is going to be a sudden return and an unexpected return. All right? Now, that's not to say that there aren't things that will happen at the end that will make people think, Lord, maybe it's close right? So I, I can't help but to think about the way this relates to um, Romans 11. So if, if I'm right about Romans 11, and you start to see mass conversions of Jewish people, you might have a good clue. The end is really close, all right? And, um, but again, it goes back to those that actually um, live in the light and walk in the light and have understanding of the times, right? And so Jesus says he's coming quickly, that is suddenly. And then notice his coming is then here directly related to the retribution that he's going to bring when he returns. He says, my reward is with me, rendering every man to what he has done, according to what he has done. Now, at this point, Jesus 
is simply echoing a principle in Scripture that is consistent over and over and over again. You see a very strong connection, for instance, with uh, this text in Isaiah 41.10 or uh, the principle that we see in Romans 2.6, and that is um, when the judgment comes, all right, it will be a judgment where Christ renders to every man and woman according to to what they've done. Now, if you just just turn back just to to Romans 2, just for a second, Paul's already told us this in Romans chapter 2. He says, uh, verse 3, Romans 2, 3, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. So here's, here's the thing uh, that, you, that you can't ignore, and that is that every passage that deals with judgment deals with judgment according to what we've done. All right? And it doesn't matter whether you just go back to Revelation 20, books are open, Right? And you're judged according to the things that are in the books. Um, The apostle says that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds that we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Right? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to have this, this, um, this judgment seat where our works are going to be examined and they're either going to be gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble. All right, And so consistently, both Old Testament and New Testament, the principle of judgment is this. A person is judged according to their works. Okay? Now, right away, that makes, that makes people like us a little nervous. Because, I mean, what about these banners? Right? I mean, sola fide, faith alone. Right? Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. And yet, the scriptures teach us without equivocation that the judgment is always a judgment according to works. Now, it's not actually as hard as we might think. All right, I'm going to give you a, a quiz. Okay? Is Paul for or against works? It's a trick question. Okay. Is he for the works of the law by which a person tries to be justified? No. He's actually opposed to the person 
who's trying to justify themselves by the works of the law, right? By the way, so Paul talks about works in two different ways, okay? <laughs> Read your Bible with, the, with your eyes open enough to notice, okay, it talks about works in two different ways, right? Works of the law, no one's justified, right? So as far as works go, there's a sense in which grace is opposed to works as a means of salvation, right? Faith is opposed to works as a means of salvation, right? But is Paul opposed to good works? And the answer is absolutely not, because the very passage that teaches us, for instance, uh, what we have up on the wall, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, that the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? Got it? Not of works. Then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. All right? So, guess what? (laughs) Works, the good kind, the kind you're supposed to be zealous for, the kind that Paul describes in Galatians 5, 6 as faith working through love, those works actually demonstrate something. Those works demonstrate that we have genuinely met the ultimate condition of being made right with God which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and through his redemptive work on the cross and through the resurrection. So, the reason why we, judgment is always by works is because works are the truest demonstration of real faith. I read this, just interesting, I don't usually read this guy uh, in Revelation preparation, but... I read this and I thought this was just, it was so insightful. Faith is indeed one of the fruits of the Spirit, but not the only one. And if faith is the only fruit that enters into the final judgment, when or where are the Spirit's other fruits evaluated or approved? If our works are the works of the Spirit in us, then their approval is the Son's final judgment concerning the Spirit, the vindication of the Spirit as the Spirit of righteousness. At the final judgment, the Son, speaking the Father's final word as the incarnate word, will say that the Spirit did everything expected of him. The Spirit will be able to say that it is finished. If judgment were not according to works, when would the Spirit be vindicated? When would the Father and Son say, well done, good and faithful Spirit? Now, what's interesting is that that what he's bringing out is the... um, The works in our life are a demonstration of the Spirit's work in our life, right? And so in a sense, at the judgment, not only will we stand as justified sinners, and hence, so think about it this way, you stand as a justified sinner, and are you then at that point publicly uh, vindicated as a child of God, right? So you're justified now, but you're justified by faith, 
on that day, your faith will be vindicated and you will be publicly justified before angels and, and the whole cosmos, all right? And so, in other words, your justification becomes sight at that point. But not only are we vindicated, but in a, in a, a sense, Jesus himself is vindicated, as the true Savior and Redeemer who saved and redeemed his people. So every, so on that judgment day, what the Father is doing is the Father is going to bring glory to himself and to his Son by vindicating his Son for the awesome work that he's accomplished in the lives of his people. So, if, um, so, so I'm going to pick on Johnny just for a second, all right? So on judgment day... Johnny stands there, and, and he is um, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Well done, good and faithful servant spoken to Johnny vindicates the work of Jesus in Johnny's life as redeemer and justifier. But the works will vindicate the spirit in Johnny's life as the one who, who sanctified him and bore fruit through him, all right? So, when we talk about justification, or uh, when we talk about judgment according to works, we're not saying you're saved by works, okay? Now, we could give you, I could give you another trick quiz. Are you saved by works? Yes, but just not yours. You're saved by the works of Christ, all right? And so, what, when we say a judgment according to works, we're not saying that you're, ju- that you're saved by works. But what we are saying is that the works are the vindication and the demonstration of the redemptive and work of Christ and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So, the Reformation... Um, this gets kind of put in a popular form, but it comes from Calvin. And that is faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is not alone. All right? Now, by the way, this, this, this kills easy believism. All right? Because what it says is, if you're truly justified you're also going to be truly sanctified. Yes, there will be varying degrees for sure and all of that, but you can't separate the work of Christ from the work of the Spirit. Okay? You can distinguish them, but you cannot separate them. Okay? And so my pastor, um, Jim Andrews, who's still preaching, even though Jim, I think Jim started um, preaching shortly after the war between the states. But Jim, Jim uh, just a master of phrase and metaphor, and he would say, you're saved by faith and faith alone. But you're judged by works and works alone. So when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, right? my reward is with me. That is my recompense. Okay? So we think of reward simply only like in terms of, uh, you know, like a treat, right? Um, 
my recompense is with me. And I'm going to actually manifest retributive justice based on what you've done. Now, I think that that actually should sober us and motivate us to live a life for his glory, all right? And to be a people of his own possession, zealous for good works, okay? Then Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, first and last, the beginning and the end. And so there's, um, there's a, a little phrase that I've tried to use over the years, and that is that the, the titles of God are are context sensitive. In other words, when a, a designation, so all, pay attention to the Psalm 31 that we did tonight. All of those titles for God actually are uh, relevant to the context for the psalmist, right? So here, Jesus just says, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. I'm going to render to every man according to his works. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. In other words, it is absolutely, totally, thoroughly appropriate for the one who is the originator and the goal of all history to be the judge. Okay? By the way, it's also incredibly fitting, not only for the originator and goal of all history to be the judge, but the one who is the sole object of saving faith to be the judge. Because Jesus will stand as judge and the, uh, the, the, the line of demarcation for every human being will be, what did you do with me, right? What did you do with Christ? Okay. Now, we've already seen this, uh, alpha, omega, first, last, beginning, end. That's rooted back in Isaiah 41, 44, and 48, And here's the amazing thing is that in the book of Revelation, it is used of God and of Christ. In fact, I think I put those texts there for you. Um, And so you, you cannot get a clearer statement regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so if Yahweh is the first and the last, right? Isaiah 41, 44, 48... And then God is the first and the last. Christ is the first and the last. Christ is the first and the last. God is the first and the last. And then Christ is the first and the last. It's because Christ is God. All right? Now that brings us to verses 14 and 15. And you can see the way that the, the epilogue kind of just takes these, these, these just short, um, almost uh, terse, abrupt, just little, you know, just uh, in a sense sort of like bullet points as he's ending the book. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So first of all, blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, back in chapter 7 and verse 14, we have the saints that have come through the great tribulation and their robes were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. So that's what we're talking about here. So blessed are those who 
have washed their robes. Now, when you think about, so remember, we've said this before, so the end is just like the beginning, right? Better, superlatively better. Blessed, so what's the opposite of blessed? Cursed, right? Blessed are those who wash their robes. So here you have the garden temple, New Eden, all of that's already been described. And of course, what happens with Adam in the garden? What is he covered with? What's that? Someone say apples? (laughs) Hope not. Yeah, and where'd he get those? He made them. So here's Adam who actually and Eve, that that cover their shame with their own efforts, which actually is a grand picture of self-righteousness or works righteousness. And so those that are actually in the New Eden, that are in the Garden City Temple, they are actually those that aren't there because they've made for themselves fig leaf coverings. They are the ones who are there because their robes have been washed white. And of course, the robes are the symbolic of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and washed white is symbolic of having been washed in his blood. And so, how do we know that this is actually um, uh, sort of uh, 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 the, the flip side of Adam and his fig leaf covering? Well, if you have your robes washed, then you have the right to eat of the tree of life. So Adam, who wasn't clothed in a robe of righteousness, but in his own, own efforts, is exiled, okay? cut off from the tree of life. Those that have their robes washed white actually now belong. So Adam is exiled, but those who are clothed with Christ are actually given the right to the tree of life. Okay? So, and, and again, why do you get to eat of the tree of life in the age to come? because the last Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so we were cut off from the tree of life because the first Adam failed. We get the right to eat of the tree of life because the second Adam succeeded. And so then they entered the gates into the city, and so entrance, not exile, is the portion of Christ's people, all right? And so that idea, obviously, of entrance into the city. Um, again, all of these, um, all of these uh, antitheses, right? So it, 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 the opposite of being exiled is the ability to enter. Being cut off from the tree of life, the opposite is given the right to eat of the tree of life. Having uh, your own fig leaf righteousness is the opposite of actually having robes that have been washed, right? So then... John tells us, but outside, outside. Um, And remember, it's it's this um, garden city temple. So there's there's a wall, right? And outside, this doesn't just mean like like right outside the gate, okay? It means outside in the sense of those that are exiled 
they actually don't have entrance into the city. They're outside. They don't have access to the tree of life. They're outside. And of course, consistent with the, the, the theme in Genesis, they're in the place of exile. All right? And of course, exile, the ultimate exile, is what? Well, it's eternal punishment. It's hell. And so, outside are, first of all, the dogs. So, I guess this is proof there's no dogs in heaven. No. <laughs> I know. Ariel's listening, and I'm going to get home, and she's going to say, there are dogs in heaven. And cats, and I'm going to say, Scripture does not say that. So outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, guess what? We've already seen this back in 21.8, right? So, by the way, there's nothing new that's, that's in this. It's all repetition from one thing or another. And so back in 21.8, we had a list of eight of those that don't get to enter, those that are outside. Let me just give them to you. The cowardly, the faithless, the abominable, murderers, the, those guilty of porneia, that is the sexually immoral, uh, pharmacoi, that is those that are, uh, we translate it sorcery. The idea is the use of drugs for occultic purposes. Okay? Uh, and then idolaters, and then all, all liars. Okay? This is a list of six, and with the exception of dogs, everything else comes from that first list, all right? But outside are the dogs. Now, um, you, you have to keep in mind that... Um, John is not just make, making a simple statement that relates to canines. Okay? So from a Jewish perspective, who were the dogs? Gentiles. Okay? What, is, what does Paul do in Philippians 3? He actually reverses it. Beware the dogs. Who does he mean? Well, the false circumcision. Actually, those who... who um, the, the, the circumcision that reject Jesus, they're not the true circumcision anymore, okay? And so, guess what is happening in Philippians 3, and by the way here, you have a reversal, okay? The Jews would have looked with contempt on Gentiles, calling them dogs, because dogs, you didn't have a pet dog in ancient Israel, you know, you didn't like teach, you didn't, you didn't get a golden retriever and teach it to fetch the Jerusalem Times and bring you to you and bring your slippers, all right? Um, the, dogs were, were, were scavengers. They were disgusting. They were, they were contemptuous, right? And, and so that was a fitting analogy for Gentiles from Jewish people. What ends up happening here? is that dogs now ends up being, in a sense, a reversed term, right? And it is those that are, 
in a sense, the false circumcision or those that reject Jesus. And then he gives the other, the rest of the list, which is from the, the first list. And then at the bottom, it says, all who love lying. So, so the first one is all the liars. And then the last one is all who love lying. Now, there's a good insight here, and that is that the idea of fornication, idolatry, murder, sorcery, and lies, all of that is what makes up um, Babylon's culture of death. Okay. Okay. That's what makes up Babylon's culture. And so, so those who are excluded from Jerusalem are those that have been living according to Babylon's standards. Hence, the filthy, the evildoers. And so there's a very clear line of distinction when we get to the end of the age and enter into the eternal state. So so right now, um, you know, you look around, you see people and... um, you know, I was preaching one time in Louisiana and drove past a, a Wendy's. And on the marquee out in front of the Wendy's, it said, uh, Christ is risen from the dead. And I said, that is so cool. And the guy I'm with says, well, not really. He is a deacon at the Baptist church, but he also is a notorious drunkard and fornicator. Okay. Now, um, point, well, you've got, let's say the Bible Belt. Okay. Everybody's a Christian. Okay. I mean, everybody's, uh, everybody's a Southern Baptist or Church of Christ or Methodist, right? Um, everybody. And the the number of people that actually go to church in the Bible Belt is, is a vast majority. In fact, non-churchgoers are in the minority in the Bible Belt, right? But in all seriousness, how many people do you think that simply say, um, Christ is risen from the dead, and then live as drunkards and fornicators, um, do you think that they go to heaven? Well, no. Okay? No. Uh, you could you could put up a thousand marquees, okay, and it doesn't so it it doesn't mitigate uh, your drunkenness or your fornication, and so we live in this world and we have this um, we have these the the wheat and the tares, all right, and it sometimes, I mean, let's face it, even in church, sometimes it's not all that easy to tell. Actually, who's in and who's not, right? Okay, I mean, there are times where, and, and this is part of the agony, in a sense, of, 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 of being an elder, is that you, you wrestle with this issue. D- does this person actually really know the Lord, have you ever met somebody and they profess and they read and they, they, they have all of the lingo down and yet 
the more you talk to them, the more you wonder whether or not they're actually really a stranger to Jesus. Okay? So do, do unconverted people who are professing to be Christians get admit, admitted into the memberships of local churches? Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, there's, there's a remedy for that, and it's called church discipline, <laughs> all right? But here's the thing. We don't do it on purpose, right? We, in fact, what are we going to do? In this life, we're going to give somebody uh, as, as long as we possibly can, give them the judgment of charity. They tell me, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. I love the Lord Jesus. You, get, you give them the judgment of charity. You, you take them at, at their word until you can't. Well, in this life, you can't infallibly see who's in and who's not. But in the eternal state, there will be no question. None. It will be crystal clear for all of eternity who's in and who's out. And so, just like so many things that we struggle with in this tension between the already and the not yet, one of these days, that's not going to be an issue anymore. And in fact, all the people that said, Lord, Lord, but then never did anything Jesus said, that's going to be made public too. Sobering thing to stop and think about the fact that one of these days, there's a judgment that's going to come. It's going to be according to truth. And all that we really are is what's going to be exposed. Not simply what we say we are. Makes you want to live in the fear of the Lord. With as much honesty and integrity before God and before your fellow man as you possibly can you do realize it's an enormous waste of time to just fool the people that you go to church with. Right? Like, what good is that? Oh, all those, all those sinners thought so highly of me. I just have a feeling God's going to say, well, that, that doesn't make any difference. Right? Well, Jesus and the Spirit, verses 16 and 17, and we'll, we'll, we, we won't finish um, Revelation tonight. Um, verse 16, I love this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who hears come. Let the one who uh, is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And so I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify. And so again, this is this repeated theme 
Jesus actually sends the angel. The angel testifies. The testimony is legal or forensic. And notice, it's for the churches. You do, you, you saw that, right? He says, to testify to you these things for the churches, right? So all that is contained in the book of this prophecy is for the churches. And so then he says, I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And again, you have to just stand amazed at this title. Um, I am, uh, I, would, I would actually argue that. Uh, so in John, you have seven I am statements. You, you know that? Isn't it interesting? Seven I am statements. Okay. I would say this is an I am statement. All right. And it is, so it is, I am, then I am what? So self-identification with Yahweh. I am then the root and the descendant of, Jesus, uh, of, of David. So what you end up having here, so <laughs> it, if you're the root and the descendant, <laughs> what are you? So, in a sense, what's happening is that this is sort of um, Jesus as as Israel typology. So, where does where does the stock of David come from? It comes from from Israel, but then the it's the um, it's the shoot of Jesse, right? Uh, Isaiah eleven one. That's the Messiah, which of course is David, pointing us to Christ. So you could. If one want to memorize it this way, Jesus is both the root and the shoot of David. All right? So he's the root. <laughs> and the Lord said to my Lord, right? How is David's son? Right? Remember the, you remember Jesus actually putting it to the Pharisees with Psalm 110, right? So how can David say, right? And so he's the root and the shoot, and this is a, a wonderful messianic promise. He's the origin, right? And then the fulfillment of the Davidic promises, messianic title. And then he says he's the bright morning star. And um, I think if you, if you go through the Old Testament, you start to realize that there are so many different metaphors that have Messiah as, as light, all right? So... He's, um, he's the prophesied star in Numbers 24, right? You remember what happens? Th- this is, by the way, how the Magi know to look for the, the natal star is because of the prophecy of Numbers 24, which was made by none other than Balaam. Yeah. But that's an early messianic prophecy that Messiah was going to actually be this bright and shining star, so to speak. And then you have Malachi, where he is the son of righteousness, S-U-N, the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. And then you have Matthew 2, where the Magi actually, searching the scriptures, see that star over the place where Jesus is. And then, of course, Jesus is the light of the world, and he's the lamp of the new Jerusalem. All right. 
And so Christ, who is resurrection, in a sense, brings about a new dawn, a new day, as the bright and morning star. And so, it, it, uh, this section ends with, the spirit and the bride say, come. Okay? Now, some, and I'd never even thought of this until I saw it today. Some suggest that it's the spirit and the bride, that is the spirit and the church, saying to Jesus, come. All right? Never even pondered that before. But I don't think it's right. Okay? I think it's plausible, but I don't think it's right. I think the idea is, um, in the context, the coming is what? Well, the coming to the one who, who, who what? Is thirsty and wants to take the water of life without cost. So the spirit is saying, come. And the bride is saying, come. And so it, in a sense, what is, what is happening is that this is the, the message, come, all right, come to the water of life without cost. Come is the message of the spirit and the bride, right? So what is, what is the message of the church? The message of the church, the message of the bride is, is come to Jesus, right? Come to the bread of life, come to the living water, right? Come to the one, come unto him, all who are weary and heavy laden, he'll give you rest. And so it's come, 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 right? What's the message of the spirit? It's come, come to Christ. But here's, here's the glorious thing, is that the church and the spirit have the same message, but there's a difference. When the spirit says come, you come. <laughs> when the church says come, you may or may not. All right? So, so what you have, by the way, the spirit says come through the, the bride saying come. All right? But not every set time the bride says come, does the spirit say come. Why? Because when the spirit says come to Jesus, that is effectual because it's the spirit that's doing it. When it's the bride that's doing it, it's the people of God who are doing what? Offering the general offer of the gospel, indiscriminately calling people to Christ. By the way, you do know that you have full warrant uh, and, and even obligation to invite everyone to come to Jesus. You don't look for like a little sign on their forehead, like a little E, elect. Okay, I could talk to him. That doesn't work that way. You actually do what? You go and you tell everybody. And when the Spirit says, come, guess what? Now, the bride may say it to somebody over and over and over and over again. The Spirit only has to say it once. Okay? Now, what's interesting is the way that this, this passage is, is fascinating. Let the one who hears say, Come. So who's the one who hears? Well, th- think of the way the seven letters end. Let everyone who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what we're talking about is, not only is it the church corporate that says come, but it's also those that have the ears to hear. That it is those, in a sense, it's the individual mandate now. So it's corporate mandate, but now it's an individual mandate. And, and what's the invitation? Let the one who is thirsty Come. So you know we sing this all the time. Um, the only thing that he requireth 
is to feel your need of him. If you're thirsty, come. That's the only prerequisite. If you're thirsty, those who feel their thirst, those who actually are longing, those that actually are looking to be satisfied, those who are looking to have their soul thirst quenched, come. And then the next line, the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. So on the first, in, on the one hand, it's those who feel their need, that is their thirst. On the other hand, it's those that actually know their poverty. Come to the water of life without cost. And this, of course, is a direct um, reference to Isaiah 55 in verse 1. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, let him come. Let him come by without money, without cost. And so here is this beautiful picture of a gospel invitation right at the end of the book of Revelation. And so, let me just say before we, before we close, when, when you take into account that Jesus is going to render every person according to their deeds, and he's coming quickly. You have to realize that you don't know how much time we have to labor in the Lord's vineyard. You don't know how much time we have to actually be about our master's business. And so... We have a a, a gospel that quenches people's soul thirst. We have a Savior who offers himself and all of his benefits without cost. And we get the privilege to say to people, if you're thirsty, come. And it's free. It's absolutely free. And so in light of the fact that he's coming quickly... We should be praying, Lord, give me the opportunity to offer the water of life without cost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the end of this book. Lord, what, a, what an astonishing conclusion to an absolutely marvelous book. And Father, we pray that you would ignite our own hearts with that, the the beauty of the free offer of the gospel. We pray, Father, that we would be faithful in making it known. Lord, whether it's leaving tracks or having conversations on walks or, Lord, whatever the context, maybe, maybe people that we've known for years that we've talked to so many times, Father, just remind us even tonight that it only takes the Holy Spirit one time. And so we just need to be faithful. And so, Father, we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.